Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Jeff Chandler, Director of Business Development at Fanatics. Today, Fanatics boasts the world's largest collection of officially licensed merchandise from a wide spectrum of sports. When Jeff started with the company in 2008, they had two stores in Jacksonville Malls, and the e-commerce side of the business was in its infancy. It's, if you would have told me 13 years ago that I'd be working, you know, Jeff, in 13 years, you're going to be working for a $2.4 billion company, I would have told you you were crazy because it was, uh, you know, uh, small operation, very mom and pop-ish. You know, our founders were still heavily involved. And then to see kind of where we are now, uh, the growth has been uh, enormous. It's been a really fun ride to be on um, to see where we started and where we are now. One of the keys to that growth has been creating a more vertical approach where Fanatics monitors and adapts to a vast array of conditions from game results to free agency and trades and even the weather. Anything that you could throw at us, we, we should be able to, to, to handle that uh, from a manufacturing standpoint. And we have you know, data analysts and scientists and mathematicians that are constantly looking at algorithms and how we're you know, we're bidding on keywords based on what's happening in, in specific markets. Much of Jeff's work with Fanatics focuses on colleges, an arena he knows well after going from walk-on on the University of Florida's football team to their all-time leading scorer as the Gators kick. Kicking is a lot about confidence. It's very similar to golf. If your confidence is high, you're, you're going to perform well. And, uh, and kicking, if you there's no gray area. It's black or white. You either make it or you miss it. You can't have an okay game. You either had a good game or a bad game. Jeff then went on to the NFL, playing for three teams while working out with several of them. When I interviewed at Fanatics, they said, how do you handle rejection? I said, I'm 27 years old. I've gotten fired seven times. I think I'll, uh, I think I'll be okay. Jeff does share a bit about his playing days in this episode, including his role in an epic playoff comeback with the 49ers. He also speaks about his transition from the locker room to an office, and he describes how he is involved with an extern program that helps players in the NFL transition as their playing careers draw to a close. Every year, the NFLPA uh, works with companies and they, they give guys that are either currently playing or had, have recently retired from the game, they give them a chance to earn real-world experience. You know, Fanatics has been a part of the program uh, since day one. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for more information about many things we will discuss and to sign up for our mailing list to get notified when we have a new episode. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Director of Business Development at Fanatics, Jeff Chandler. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. I've heard of e-commerce, and that's, I think, everybody's pretty familiar with it and probably uses e-commerce a lot. But I've seen what Fanatics does described as the commerce. What is that and how is it different? Yeah, so it's very similar to direct consumer. We've kind of coined the term and, and v-commerce. I don't think we were the first to use it, but it's, a, it's an apt way to describe our business. Uh, if you think about it, when we first started, we were buying other people's goods and then reselling them. We were buying products from Nike and Adidas and Under Armour and vendors, you know, big and small. And then uh, we kind of had this moment uh, in 2011, we purchased a manufacturing arm and we started realizing that there was an opportunity for us to start building our own product and then selling it, making it exclusive to our platform uh, and start selling it direct to consumer. And so that was uh, kind of where this all kicked off. And then over the course of the last 10 years, we've had very fortunate circumstances where we've been able to come in and add more capabilities on the the manufacturing side that have given us uh, capabilities now in headwear and hard goods too. So non-apparel items. And uh, yeah, it's just been great for our business. Um, you know, obviously we can react a lot quicker when we're controlling the entire supply chain from product creation to getting that product live on the side. You know, we can have products live within, you know, hours of a game going final or an event happening. And so the traditional supply chain business is you order a bunch of product six, eight months out in advance or four and six weeks out in advance, and then you get it. In this business and in the sports world, it moves so fast that if you don't have product or something to commemorate an event or, an, or, or a, um, a win or something like that, you miss the entire market under the old supply chain model. So 
what we've done is really taken a more uh, progressive approach and trying to capitalize what we call on micro moments. So that could be anything from a championship or to a big catch or a home run or, or a statistical uh, event that happened uh, in a game. So, yeah, it's really transformed our business. And, and, you know, we have a lot of people that focus on that, right, too. So just making sure that we're staying abreast as to what's going on in the, in the sports world and then how do we, you know, tie a product into what's going, uh, what's going on. So, yeah, v-commerce is uh, something that I had to get used to, to a new term that I had to get used to saying, but uh, it's, it's effectively just a direct-to-consumer model uh, in addition to what we're doing where we're buying and, and selling other people's licensed product as well. And you mentioned the big games and obviously they're the championship games or a historic moment that happens. Those are probably the pretty easy ones to figure out, but that model gives you guys the agility to react to other things as well. I would think trades and free agency signings, you know, when Tom Brady is no longer a Patriot and suddenly a Buccaneer, that's a big business day for you guys, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we invest in a lot of blank product, so uh, jerseys will come in unfinished and then we, segment a bunch of those off for free agency or trades or anything like that. And so when LeBron went to the Lakers, for instance, you know, we were selling and shipping and delivering LeBron jerseys almost immediately. Um, same thing with Tom Brady. When he went to the Bucks, we had inventory that was ready to be uh, manufactured on. And so we were able to capitalize on that moment. The traditional models would not work in this instance where we'd have to wait for Nike or whoever the vendor is to ship us product with Brady and 12 on it. Right. So we were able to get to market really, really quickly with that product. So yeah, it's, it's made us more agile. Um, we've also taken some steps and worked with our vendors to make sure that we can keep product in stock and uh, you know, blank product in stock so that we can capitalize on some of these moments. So it's been um, yeah. Free agency used to be a, a difficult situation for us because then we'd have to wait and, and pre-sell items now we don't have to do that. We can start capitalizing on, on moments that happen or trades or new signings that happen uh, almost immediately. There's another instance where the agility pays off. And this one is fascinating for me to even wrap my head around. Weather. You guys can look ahead and, well, it's going to be raining or it's going to be unseasonably cold and completely change what you're producing that week of that game, right? Yeah. So we always like to say we're weather ready. Um, so, you know, we also operate a lot of retail venues inside stadiums and our agility allows us to send product. You know, if we can forecast this, send product into those uh, stadiums and arenas ahead of any sort of weather weather issues. But yeah, I mean, if, if you think about anything that could happen out there, any variable out there that could happen, we have the ability to adjust and, and uh um, be ready for that. So that is, uh, you know, kind of the unique aspect of, of our agility is anything that you could throw at us, we, we should be able to, to, to handle that uh, from a manufacturing standpoint. And we have, you know, data analysts and scientists and mathematicians that are constantly looking at algorithms and how we're, you know, we're bidding on keywords based on what's happening in, in specific markets. If there's a cold front, right, there's, we're going to start investing more in fleece and outerwear, if there's, you know, a massive heat wave, we're going to start, you know, increasing our bids based on t-shirts or tank tops or flip-flops or bathing suits, whatever it might be. So trying to uh, create business around whatever happens and be ready for that whenever it happens. And so far, so good. We've done a really good job. We have great leadership and, and uh, a team that is fully supportive of, you know, everything that, that we're trying to accomplish uh, in licensed sports retail. The data points, it's just kind of mind-boggling, all the different things that you're looking at and monitoring. And it's not only the results, but you mentioned weather and probably even just the social media gossip of, of where players might go. Where is J.J. Watt going to be? Because you got to be ready to go, especially if he lands in a place like Pittsburgh with his brother or Green Bay because he's from Wisconsin. Like That's going to be huge. You guys have all this data coming in. You mentioned a little bit already the data scientists who are looking at that, but how much emphasis is put on that within the company and how big is that division within Fanatics to just be taking all that in and figuring out how to get you guys ready to take advantage of whatever is about to happen? Yeah, so our, our digital marketing team, uh, which com comprises everything from our email marketing, our social media marketing, to our search engine marketing, 
uh, is over 100 people deep. Um, and that's kind of where our analysts and mathematicians and statisticians sit. And they're developing these algorithms um, that we use to uh, increase, decrease bids based on what's happening. They're also scraping websites. They're scraping Facebook to kind of get an idea of what's being communicated and where what trend is out there. Uh, and then we use that information on our own to help us inform us on our buying or on our manufacturing or on our marketing, right? And so we're uh, following trends. We're, we're, we have social media data and, and uh, conversations that we're trying to piece together. And then post-event. So we, we tap into uh, score feeds so that we can send emails immediately after a game goes final. It says, hey, you know, your team won. Um, here's a T-shirt commemorating the, the, the game or whatever it might be. Or it might just be a celebrate the win type email. So, yeah, there's a lot of automated stuff that we're doing, but then we are – you know, analyzing everything else uh, in the marketplace to help inform us in our decisions across the company. So not just on the marketing side, but on the product side as well. And it, I've seen that there's kind of a, an unintended benefit of all this, that you guys are able to reduce waste. You don't need to print a bunch of championship t-shirts for a team that doesn't win. You're able to just respond to that result and go quick with it. How much does that help the bottom line that you don't have this waste problem? Yeah, it's, uh, it's significant. Um, you know, everybody always asks me like, what did you do with all the, uh, you know, the Clemson product or whatever it might be, you know? And we're like, well, it doesn't really work like that. There's, there's maybe an instance where a vendor would commit to having product pre-shipped or pre-printed, but those days are few and far between now. The way that we're set up is we have a network of printers all around the country. So if there's something happening in Kansas City when the Royals won the World Series, we had printers in and around Kansas City that had our blue blank shirts ready to go. Uh, the same thing was going on. I don't remember who they played, but let's just say it was, you know, somebody that was a, a, a red team, if you will. So we've got those blanks stationed at another um, print, uh, network of printers in that local market to print product for that team whenever it goes. And then we're distributing that product out to the marketplace from there. So yeah, the, the model has helped us be incredibly uh, efficient and uh, reduce the, the uh, volume of product that gets shipped over to, uh, you know, wherever Africa or Asia, you know, depending on a team losing. And you, you talked about having some, supplies there you're you're a supplier to some entities some stadiums how much is it the direct consumer that you're doing how much of it is being that supplier to whether it's the university or just independent memorabilia stores yeah so our uh, our e-commerce operation is our largest segment of our business our second largest is our wholesale business so that's where we're selling directly to uh, sporting goods retailers, um, mid-tier retailers like your Kohl's, your JC Penney's, uh, and then mass retailers as well. So Target, Walmart, Costco. That business is about a $700 million business. So uh, it's not insignificant. And then we also supply product to ourselves. So that's kind of where we see the opportunity going forward is, is um, building up our wholesale, getting more rights. We have pretty extensive rights on the league side. So with all the professional leagues. Um, we're not quite there yet on the college side and we're working towards that, but yeah, I mean, uh, e-commerce is still our largest, uh, segment of our business, but our wholesale business is growing quite considerably. And then that does feed into, uh, our e-commerce business as well. We're supplying a lot of our own product to our e-commerce engine and same thing with our, our venue retail relationships. We're trying to, um, use our scale and expertise and, and quick to market, uh, product to help drive additional sales in our venues. You talked about rights and earlier you mentioned licensees. How does this business model work that you guys are able to be that supplier and use the logos and use the brand? Yeah. So uh, it's, it, it varies, right? The leagues are um, you know, they own the rights for all 32 teams. And so you can go to the league directly and, and negotiate a deal. And then that gives you rights to, every team in that league. College is much different. It's, it's not uh, governed by one entity that can distribute these rights out per, per school. So you have to go to each individual school and uh, ask for those rights. And then, um, you know, obviously through the uh, negotiation process, figure out which channels and, 
and who you can sell product to. Um, so mainly we've been, we've existed in a vertical channel. So only the internet, we can only sell to ourselves essentially. And so now as we've added more capabilities, we're starting to go out and ask for more rights. Um, we have uh, about 10 schools now where quote unquote, the primary apparel partner for them. So uh, their sideline partner will still be able to provide product, but for everything else that is, um, you know, sold through this internet channel, it has to come through our Fanatics Brands Manufacturing Group. Now, it, it sounds bigger than it is, but we also do sub-license out um, different brands, right? We're not going to do kids very well. So we have a kids licensee that's going to handle that segment. There's certain brands that we want to bring into the mix too, whether it's a Peter Millar or Vineyard Vines, you know, really upscale stuff that's not in our core. But for the core product, the men's and women's tees and fleece, long sleeve, short sleeve, stuff like that, we're going to uh, manufacture a lot of that product on our own. A lot of communication with schools and, and explaining our distribution strategy, um, which, you know, we, to date, we've been very successful, um, you know, having those conversations. And, and so that's really where the contracts get done. And I would think that the more you can have available, the bigger your market share is going to be as director of business development. Is that really kind of your sweet spot is looking for those opportunities of new companies to be working with? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. My, my role has kind of evolved. I've been with fanatics now for 13 years and um, it was purely focused on grabbing e-commerce, right? So working with an athletic department to say, Hey, I know you're with X company. We think we can do a better job and drive more revenue for you and, and treat your customers better. Um, and so I spent probably the first 10 years doing that. And then as we've evolved, we've started adding, you know, the manufacturing capabilities. We acquired Majestic Athletic, who was the on-field supplier for Major League Baseball for years. We acquired them in 2017. And that kickstarted our, you know, our conversation with schools on the right side. And then, you know, we've slowly evolved into uh, having 12 partners on the retail side of the business where we're at, you know, LSU Stadium. We're handling all their game day sales at football and baseball and basketball. And so it's evolved so that not only am I focused on e-commerce rights, but how can I work with my partners to um, acquire other rights, right? So whether that be licensing rights or retail rights uh, related to their to their athletics venues. So yeah, it's it's um, and, and we deal with rights holders too. So in our world, there's a vast sandbox of multimedia rights holders, whether it's the Learfield IMG, the Playfly, those types of guys. And so we, we have deals where we uh, work with those guys directly too. So it's understanding the landscape and then finding out where there are opportunities and how we think we can, we can fit in, into some of those opportunities. To make it all work, there's a lot of computerized stuff happening on the, the web scraping and the data mining and everything that's happening there. Um, to say nothing of how much the logistics is probably automated and, and that but you don't have the luxury probably for what you're doing of having all this data pulled for you. You got to do this research on your own and you're keeping up with different schools, different leagues, different entities that all have very different constituencies and touch points. How in the world do you wrap your head around all of that and do this research to go have that intelligent conversation and, and try to land that deal? Yeah. So it's something that we as a company are trying to get better with because of how uh, varied our relationships are. Um, but I, I've always said that I think my value at Fanatics has been the relationships that I've been able to develop and build over the 13 years. A lot of the people that I was first communicating with are now ADs, you know? And so there's been this evolution where as they've continued to kind of go through their career, I've been able to keep in touch with them and those relationships have been built over time. And so I think I have just a lot of institutional knowledge of being in this market and this landscape for the past 13 years that I can draw on. But we as a company, as we are starting to get tentacles in other areas of the, of the university landscape, we're trying to figure out how do we manage that better. And so we've made some strides, but certainly there's always room, room for improvement. I mean, we work with 125 institutions and conferences as their e-commerce partner. And so, um, you know, managing that is, is no easy task. We have a great group that handles our day-to-day our -day operations, 
but yeah, people in this industry, you know, everybody's moving around and, and, you know, taking the next step. And so it's important that you keep in touch with those folks. And so um, I think we've done a pretty good job, but there's always room for improvement. Adding a layer of complexity is a new initiative, uh, a relatively new initiative for fanatics, which is global expansion. And even now I saw this week going into China, how does getting into that international space, obviously the opportunity is huge, but how does that complicate this business model that you guys have created? Yeah. Um, you know, now we're going to be asked to do more from, uh, from our partners, which I think is good. Um, but we've got to, you know, set the groundwork and lay the infrastructure. Uh, it really, the, the expansion into China, it's exciting for our company. We've, um, you know, in 2015, I believe, or 16, we acquired Kitbag, which was based in, in the UK. And they were doing what we were doing, but uh, for soccer brands, not necessarily on the college side or anything like that. And so they had a really good business model. They just needed to be, um, you know, it needed to evolve. And so we kind of created that European office with the goal of eventually expanding into Asia and South America. And so Asia had always been on our radar. Uh, we have an office in Japan as well. And so uh, China was kind of the next logical step. Uh, and and the, the NBA business there is huge. I think the NFL has tried to figure out a way to crack into that market. So I think we're going to be a, a, an asset and a liaison in that. Um, so we're going to take what we do very, very well in the, in the U.S. and in our e-commerce vertical operation and then apply those same uh, principles to building a business in, in China. So it's exciting. Um, you know, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how our college market is going to play in there. I know that, um, you know, that's been a topic of conversation for years and years on the college side. Uh, so we'll have to, to see where that lands. But I know, you know, just in talking with our group internally, NBA is going to be huge. Uh, and then, you know, Major League Baseball will as well. Um, I think Major League Baseball has, has continued to grow their presence in Asia. You mentioned 13 years, you started in 2008. What was the size and the footprint of Fanatics when you started with the company? Yeah, I think we were at probably 125 employees. Uh, and, and that was including our corporate office, which corporate, I, I struggle to call it a corporate office, but, and that included all of our warehouse and customer service and everything. And and I used to joke with people that I could go out to the warehouse and I would know everybody by name because it was kind of that small of a, of an operation. Um, and same thing with customer service, you know, it used to be in a, a room that had about 20 cubes. Now we have a building that has a thousand cubes in it for customer service when we need to peak up. But I think our revenues were probably somewhere around, uh, 45 to $50 million at that time when I started. Um, and you know, I think last year was, a little over 2 billion, 2.4, 2.5 billion dollars as a company, which is is insane to think about. You know, when I first started, we still had mall stores here in Jacksonville, and uh, those are have been completely sold and turned over. But when I used to tell people that I work for Fanatics, they would say, "Is that uh, is that the store in the Orange Park Mall or in the Avenues Mall?" And uh, <laughs> you know, I had to say, "No, no, no. It's a much bigger company than just those two stores." Let me let me explain to you how we got to where we got to, and um, yeah, I mean, it really was a product of where we are. I mean, you know, we, we, we live within an hour of three Navy bases. And so we would get a lot of that population that were new to Jacksonville. They'd come to the mall and they'd say, oh, uh, you know, I'm from Michigan. I really wish I could buy a Wolverine's hat. And then, you know, it was kind of that light bulb moment. Like, are we going to start franchising these out or are we going to go online? And uh, our the Brian Swallow, who hired me, was Internet employee number one. He's still with the company. And, you know, they were building a website in the back of a mall store trying to figure all this out and pulling product from the floor before somebody else could get a hold of it to fulfill an online order. And so you learn a lot when you go through that process. And so um, they were able to take what they learned there and then apply it and uh, ultimately made the decision not to franchise them out and, and go to just selling these same products online. And you, I mean, this was in 1999, 2000. Google wasn't even, you know, invented yet. And so, you know, you really had to scratch and claw to try and get business at that point in time. And so they, they did it by a lot of hard work and ingenuity and, you know, coding for, for dummies book is kind of the, how this all started. And they, they pieced it all together and made it work. 
you've touched on some of them, but if we could just kind of put it all together in one as succinct as this can be, because I know it's a very large question here, but to go from a $45 million revenue company in 2008 to 13 years later being $2.4, $2.5 billion revenue, that's astronomical growth. There were some key acquisitions and, and moments in that. How would you tell that history of the last 13 years for Fanatics that resulted in that astronomical growth? Yeah, we, um, it's a very good question. We, we had a, uh, kind of a mentality that we were going to fly under the radar when we were, um, you know, football fanatics was the company back in the day. And so we kind of built a B2B business called team fan shop. And that was to legitimately separate the two businesses. This is our retail brand. This is our B2B brand. And, um, so we were, you know, doing a really good job of building our B2B business. You know, we had, uh, the University of Florida was our first school account. The SEC conference was our actual first partner. And so we started to build a nice little business. And then uh, GSI Commerce, which at the time ran all the league stores. So they did NFL, NBA, NHL, NASCAR, and MLB. Um, they acquired us because they were not strong on the college side. College was where we kind of built our business. And, and uh, it was the, the business that we knew being in Jacksonville, Florida, the heart of SEC country. And so they acquired us. And at that point in time, um, they were, I, I don't know exactly how big they were, but um, it, it instantly gave us credibility on the pro side of the business, which was great, which is what we needed. And it got them into um, this college market, which had always been something that they struggled to get into. And then a couple of years after that, we acquired Dreams Retail, which was a company just like ours. They also had a memorabilia division. And so, um, you know, that added more capabilities to what we're doing. So, um, you know, just a series of events. And then, you know, we started adding manufacturing and we acquired Majestic and Kitbag. And then in 2020, we acquired uh, assets of Top of the World, which is a number one, I think number one or number two headwear licensee in college. Uh, and then Wincraft, which has a ton of licenses on the pro side and college as well. So really kind of key pieces that fit really, really well into the overall Fanatics family. Um, so, yeah, it's been a series of, of, you know, acquisitions by strategic acquisitions that really fit our company's kind of goals. And then just great leadership. You know, we've uh, built a business where products that we create and sell uh, are exclusive. A majority of those are exclusive to Fanatics. You can't find them anywhere else. You can find them on our Fanatics.com and Fans Edge, and then also all of our partner stores. So we've had that advantage where we've been able to create some exclusivity in a market that can be commoditized at the time because everybody's selling the same product, and so we're we're able to stand out a little bit differently. But it's if you would have told me 13 years ago that I'd be working, you know, Jeff, in 13 years you're going to be working for a 2.4 billion dollar company, I would have told you you're crazy because it was. Uh, you know, uh, small operation, very mom and pop-ish, you know, our founders were still heavily involved. And then to see kind of where we are now, uh, the growth has been uh, enormous. It's been a really fun ride to be on, um, to see where we started and where we are now. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And um, I'm excited to see where the next phase of our business is going. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the expansion into China who knows what's going to come next? I know that, um, you know, we're excited about um, growing and, and moving and every sort of key asset um, acquisition that we've had over the last four years has been, you know, perfect for our company and culturally it's fit very well. So we seem to be doing something right. And uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be a part of it right now. As you talk about leadership, I have to ask you, about Michael Rubin and what has his involvement meant in this growth for the company and what is it like to work with him? Yeah, he's uh, incredibly bright, incredibly passionate. I don't know if he sleeps. Uh, he seems to be, um, you know, working at all hours of the night, um, but he has a clear vision about what he wants to do. And, you know, he dropped out of college after a semester and started building a business and, He's just laser focused. And I think that that, that trickles down um, to everybody in the company. He has sets a clear plan for what the vision is going to be. And now it's just executing against that vision. Uh, it's, it's great to have him be the, the leader of our company. And then Doug Mack, who's the CEO of Fanatics, uh, is, you know, a tremendous leader too. obviously a history being in Silicon Valley for years. And then what he's 
you know, the approach that he's taken on, on, you know, building an e-commerce business has been fantastic. So you've got Michael that is the relationship guy and knows all the people. And then Doug is building the, the, the business behind the scenes and done a really, really good job. You know, I mean, it's just been uh, the, the leadership that we have, whether it's on the operations side or on the HR side or on the finance side, it's, it's an incredible group, an incredibly talented group. Uh, and then on our college side too, you know, I mean, we have some really great leaders that um, had been in college retail for 25 years, you know, and know the landscape really, really well and have seen it evolve and can kind of help us predict what's going to happen next. So yeah, Michael's the, the the key to it all. And then his energy and enthusiasm and vision trickles down from there. And it's not limited to just the business success. What was the all in challenge? Yeah, so uh, I think very early on, Michael saw an opportunity for us to do something unique. I mean, he is very well connected to uh, sporting people, but also pop culture, too. Um, And so he's also been heavily invested in uh, prison reform. And so he's gotten to know and expand his uh, Rolodex, if you will, outside of just sports and entertainment. And so he... uh, it came, I remember this very distinctly. It came together in about 10 days where we had built this entirely new platform, this new concept. We were asked on the college side to reach out to some of our partners and see if they would be willing to, to offer to um, create these once in a lifetime experiences on campus, whether it's around a game day or to go ride on the team plane or do whatever. And so uh, we got to work on the college side. And then, you know, we had a team of people that were trying to, to go out there and find these, uh, these opportunities or gifts. And so, um, yeah, it was really a, a, a auction sweepstakes type uh, promotion that was built. And then all of the proceeds donated or generated during that time frame. I think it was up for maybe two months during the, the height of the pandemic. Uh, and it generated over $60 million that we were able to give back to, uh, I think it was five different charities that were all focused around food insecurity. And so, at that point in time, Michael was uh, very focused on that. And so, yeah, it was a total company effort. Part of the agility that we talked about earlier, this was the ultimate case of an agile company. Like We didn't have any of this stuff. And somehow within 10 days, we had a new platform. We had uh, an auction and a sweepstakes platform built. Um, so, yeah, just incredible. I, was, I played a very, very small part in it, but it was one of those kind of feel-good moments when you the, the whole company rallied behind it. And uh, we're, we're very proud of how everything played out. What were some of the, the most noteworthy experiences that were part of that auction in Sweep Six? Yeah, Robert Kraft gave a Super Bowl ring. Um, so he donated a Super Bowl ring. Uh, I think Meek Mill, who is Michael's, one of his best friends, donated a Rolls Royce. Um, we had, uh, I think the Dodgers offered to donate a, uh, wiffle ball game or a softball game at Dodger stadium for you and 22 of your friends. And so it was really stuff, you know, we pushed a lot of our partners to say, Hey, can, is there, is there a way that you guys can get involved and to see what they came up with? You know, we had some, we'd spitball some ideas, but you know, they know what their fan base thinks would be a really cool experience. And so we were able to draw on that and come up with some pretty cool stuff, like running out of the tee at Tennessee, um, you know, doing cool stuff like that. Um, we relied on our partners to give us a little bit of that insight, but it all came off very, very well. Um, and, you know, like I said, just uh, happy that we were able to contribute some on the college side because it was hard to compete at times when you see what some of these pro teams and some of these athletes are <laughs> are donating, you're kind of like, well, you know, is, uh, is a suite to the CFP. Is that really something that we're going to be excited about? Um, so yeah, it was, it was fun and uh, glad we pulled it off, um, you know, in the, the two months that we, that we had it live. There was also a pretty quick pivot to on the manufacturing side, churn out PPE when initially there wasn't enough. And that was something that I think was another corporate initiative that, just you earned so much goodwill from that. From your insider's perspective, what was it like to see the company use that agility for a greater good? Yeah, it was incredible. When they, you know, that was another Michael thought. He basically said, we've got all this fabric up in this Eastern Pennsylvania facility. Like, what can we do, whether it's gowns or face coverings to get, you know, we're not going to be selling any Major League Baseball jerseys 
Like, let's just use this for something else. And so he came up with, you know, we're going to donate a million face masks and gowns to hospital workers in the Northeast. And it was Yankees pinstripe and it was Phillies pinstripe. And to see that we could use our facility, keep the seamstresses and everybody that is there manufacturing baseball jerseys, we're keeping them employed but it's to do something else, right? So we didn't have to furlough any staff or do any, any kind of stuff like that. We were able to keep our operations up and running um, to support this, this side of business. And then, you know, that kind of was another light bulb moment. Like, all right, now we need to find other vendors that can do this and we can start doing licensed face coverings. Look, I wish we didn't have to do it, but we are sort of the, the leader in licensed sports product. And I think our fans would expect us to have this product. And so we pivoted and started bringing in the face coverings and started manufacturing our own face coverings. And so um, that became a huge, huge business for us in 2020. Uh, something that we're obviously, I don't think we're going to be able to replicate in 21, but, you know, to be able to service fans, we, we generated a, a lot of uh, donation revenue on that too. A lot of charitable efforts too, because we were giving the royalty dollars back to a charity of the school's choosing or to the league's choosing. And so uh, it was another one of those moments where we said, let's do something for the greater good, as opposed to, you know, trying to feel like anybody's profiting off of this. So we, we uh, worked with our school partners to establish where they wanted those funds to go. And, and uh, we, we started go going down that path. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of those things where it was all hands on deck for, for three weeks, trying to get those programs up and running. And then, you know, our warehouse and operations staff was able to receive all those products and then we were able to ship it back out. So it kept everybody busy when, you know, uh, sales were, were going down. People weren't sure when they were going to get back into stadiums and retailers weren't buying a ton of wholesale product from us. So it was a business that we had to get right and get right quickly. And we did. All sports fandom is results driven and, and you get a lot more sales when the team's playing well. And that's tickets, sponsorship. Yeah. gear but college sports is a little bit different and that's where your real focus is with fanatics in that it's just kind of so ingrained with people where they went to college just becomes such a an, an identity for them regardless sometimes of how the team is doing and oh by the way you have the luxury of having a few teams to pick and choose from because sometimes if football's bad you're having great success in baseball or basketball in, in that way how is it beneficial for fanatics to be so embedded in the college space because there is that kind of consistent customer base. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, every year we get a new crop of alumni and then every year we get another new crop of freshmen that come in and then there's that affinity that builds and you're right. Uh, winning does dictate a lot of what we do, but there's still going to be that affinity. And so that's kind of what our job is, right. Is to minimize the impact when performance on the field or on the court is not where it, it should be or where it used to be. And so we've done some things on our end to try and minimize that impact, but ultimately winning is going to be the number one driver of sales, but there are, you know, certain things that we can do, whether it's building collections for schools that aren't necessarily focused, but they kind of speak to, you know, being on campus or being in that community and then, you know, really touching on, on what that customer's experience was being in college. And so we're also starting to get better at, analyzing our customer profile and how do we speak to Pete versus how do we speak to Jeff? You know, are they two different consumers? Are they at different stages in their life? And so we've done some stuff on our end. Maybe somebody's not a fan, but they're buying a gift or uh, they've got a daughter or something that's going to school. Like how can we communicate with them differently than we do the hardcore person who's only uh, focused when the team's winning versus when the team's losing. And so there's a lot of analytical stuff um, that we've done on our end to help minimize wins and losses. Um, and so obviously it's great when teams win, everybody's happy, but uh, how do you minimize that impact when, when things aren't going very well is what we're trying to accomplish here. And you mentioned early on the phrase hard goods. And I would think that in the college experience, there's a much bigger opportunity for hard goods than there might be in the pro sports. So how much do you get to kind of expand that portfolio because you're working in the college space? Yeah. So our hard goods business rep represents about 15% of our total business. Uh, it's probably under indexed. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, 
you know, capabilities from our end on warehousing a lot of those products. Some of these products are big, huge, bulky items, right? Whether you're talking about bar stools or cornhole sets, and those are really, really difficult to, uh, to bring in and warehouse and hold. So we've, we work with our vendors in a dropship capacity where we take the order, we pass the order to them, and then they handle the fulfillment side. So it really allows us to showcase the product and have it for sale, but not have to do any of the operational stuff with warehousing it and shipping it out. And so what that's done is that's allowed us to open up the universe to more and more of these hard goods vendors. And so, uh, you know, we anticipate that our hard goods business is going to continue to grow. And the the face coverings for us last year is, is a non-apparel item. That's part of our hard goods business, if you will. Um, and so, you know, we, we feel like we've got that in a good spot. But uh, yeah, I think it's just growing as, you know, and that business has more innovation than the apparel business does. Um, you know, if you think about certain inventions or, or ideas that have come to light on the hard goods side, there's been more advancement there than, than apparel. And so that, that category inherently can grow quicker just based on trends in the marketplace. So whether it was cornhole boards or, you know, stuff like that, that weren't around maybe eight, nine years ago, that's been an explosion. Uh, and then home goods, a lot of people working from home and creating kind of these new office environments helped our hard goods business last year, whether it was collectibles and memorabilia or, you know, stuff for an office, uh, framed prints, stuff like that. So, yeah, I think we've got some good tailwinds behind us in that market and uh, certainly looking to grow it. For the college seasons, there's probably a number of peaks and, and then some softer times of the year. In a normal year, let's take the pandemic out. In a normal year, though, how crazy is March? Is March Madness one of those busiest times because you've got so many schools who are experiencing the euphoria of, of dancing? It is, yeah. Um, and, and you never know which one's going to be the one to kind of make it, right? So you have to prepare for 68 teams now and and then kind of follow it and track the progression and one of the um, kind of aha moments for us was when VCU, I think it might've been 2010 or 2011, their first run to the final four, we created a shirt and it just said, there goes my bracket and it had a piece of crumpled up paper on it and it had the VCU logo on it. And so we were able to turn that into a, a huge viral moment. We sold thousands of those shirts, but it's, you know, that's what we love about March Madness is those uh, Florida Gulf Coast, the perfect example, when they got hot a few years ago, we were able to tap into a market that we probably wouldn't have otherwise served had it not been for this big tournament. So March uh, is huge, obviously, for us on the basketball side. If you have the Blue Bloods in there, that always helps. You have the North Carolinas and Dukes and Kentuckys and Kansases of the world. That is great for business. And when they struggle, it does give you an opportunity to grow and find new schools. But um, certainly during a, a traditional basketball season, those blue blood schools are the ones that are driving majority of our sales. What are the other peak times related to the college scene at Fanatics? Yeah. So our, our busiest time, obviously peak is very busy. So from about November, I guess, Black Friday, Cyber Monday through December 21st, we do about 50% of our revenue. So you're talking oh. about a six week uh, stretch that represents uh, about 50% of our revenues. And then the other peak period would be, uh, it follows sort of the product delivery timeline. So we get a lot of our import product in July. Uh, that'll be like your preseason coaches polo, stuff like that, the, the jerseys for that season. And so we'll start to ramp up those marketing efforts in, in early August. And then once you know football season hits, whether it's NFL or college, that's our, our biggest time of the year. So end of Q3 into Q4 is, is our um, biggest time of the year. But then we're also doing things, you know, like we, we work with the USOC and, and the Olympics. Like that's a really nice business to have in a traditionally dead period of the year during the summer or in January during the Winter Olympics. And so that for us as a, as a company is to try and find those opportunities to, to so that we don't have to, the accordion effect of scaling up operations and scaling down operations through peak and holiday, we're trying to try and remain as consistent as possible because, you know, we scale up to about, I don't know, 10,000 employees across the company when we get into our peak season, whether that's, you know, shipping product out, customer service, it's a lot of warehouse employees. And so if we can minimize the, the ups and downs of that, it'd be better for us instead of having to constantly hire and, and uh, retrain people. So 
that's really the goal is trying to find those opportunities throughout the year that can keep that can sustain the business. That's a code that I think a lot of companies and industries are trying to crack for you with the college athletic space, name, image, and likeness. What is that going to do to what your business model is? Yeah, we're, um, you know, based on the, I guess the current recommendations from the NCAA and kind of what we're hearing uh, we think we're ultimately going to be a buyer of these rights, but we just right now it, it doesn't make sense for us. For us as a licensed apparel company, we depend on the school marks. We depend on school colors. Currently, as the legislation is recommended, that's not going to be viable. You can't take a Trevor Lawrence and then put him in a, a, a Clemson with the paw print, right? You can't do anything around that. You've got to separate the school and the student. And so we don't know if there's really an opportunity for us. We're not, we're not going to be in the, the marketing side. We're not going to pay for social media posts or anything like that with athletes because we have a lot of rights granted through our athletic department relationships. So I think what, what we're focused on is when the, um, you know, maybe it's a, a phase two approach to NIL, when they actually come and allow some more flexibility on the, on the IP side and school IP side, then I think that's where we're going to be able to be successful, but, um, it's a very complicated, it's, it's dominated a lot of internal discussions on our end, but, uh, until we get a clearer picture on, on kind of where we're at, I, I don't think we're, we're going to do anything on July 1st in Florida. I don't think, you know, that's kind of the, the, the go date for the state, but I don't think we're going to be in any position, which is kind of sad because we have this great memorabilia arm, our fanatics authentic and sportsmemorabilia.com. They, they have relationships with tons of athletes that do autograph signings and collectible memorabilia. And then they're also making their own product. And so we have a really great engine. It's just waiting for the right time to be able to put everything in, in motion. And we have the ability to do custom name and number t-shirts. So you could take a current student athlete and you could buy a t-shirt with their name and number on it. And, and, but currently we're not allowed to use the school mark on that. So we haven't even really started to dive into to what that looks like. Um, but we'll, we'll certainly be ready when, when asked to, to, to provide something for our, for our school partners. It just has to make sense for us from a operational and, and volume and, and all that. And I think it's going to be the wild west for a little bit when this thing first kicks off, but I think we're positioned based on our relationships with our school partners to, to come out favorably uh, in the long run. Kind of taking your current hat off of, of working in this merchandise arena and going back to when you yourself were a college athlete, how do you think NIL would have impacted not necessarily your personal experience, but you as a college football player and, and for the whole team, how do you think NIL would have affected what you guys were doing? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, 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 um, I think about this quite a bit, but uh, for me, it wouldn't, I, I, I don't, I wasn't, I mean, I was a, uh, a starter on the football team at Florida, but I, I wasn't a, a, I don't know. I wasn't a marketable athlete. We did have plenty of those guys. We had guys that were, uh, you know, Heisman Rex Grossman was a Heisman trophy runner up and he would have benefited greatly. But I do think that there were a lot of guys on our team that could have used additional money. They could have signed marketing deals. They could have put together football camps in their hometown to go back and do that. I think that that was an opportunity that, that, that a lot of our guys would have thrived in. And uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the marketing side, probably not as big. We didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff back then. It was a different uh, time and era. But I do think some of the other, um, you know, whether it's the camp business, other related in industries like that, we would have had some guys that, that could have done very, very well. I want to touch a little bit on your playing days, if I can. You're the leading point scorer in school history. A, a great career. Cinderella story almost, though. You came in as a walk-on, and eventually Spurrier rewarded your hard work and, and made you a scholarship player. And then you went on to do that. Most attempts and made field goals and point-afters in Florida history. What do you remember from your days as a student-athlete? Uh, I, you know, I always joke with people and I say, I learned more in five years being in the locker room than I did being in a classroom. And it was just like the, the various backgrounds that I got to interact with. And, you know, when you're out at 6am workouts and you're really seeing how hard guys are grinding, like it really gives you, you know, that's how you build community and you build team teamwork. And so 
I, I love that aspect of it is coming in after a workout and seeing guys like laying on the ground, passed out just because they, their, their legs were, they couldn't stand up. You know, I love that part of it. I love being in the locker room after a win, especially a big win. Those are some of the moments that'll stick with me forever. Uh, and then, you know, seeing how, you know, our guys dealt with losses uh, too was, um, you know, something that a lot of people don't get to see because they're not in that environment after a game, but you really start to believe that what you're doing is, is building a great team and a great community. And we had tremendous leadership. Coach Spurrier was awesome to play for. Uh, people always ask me what were my interactions with him. And I just tell him like, look, if you kept your head down and you went to class, you showed up to workouts, you were in meetings, he didn't, he didn't bother you. He just knew that you were doing your job. And so my involvement with him was very little. And, and that's kind of what I wanted. They used to tell me if you're, if, if you're a kicker and your name's in the paper, or you're being talked to, that means you're not doing your job. And so uh, I tried to fly below the radar and just go about my business and, and handle that. And uh, he afforded me that opportunity. He didn't get involved in too much about, you know, what we were doing on the special team side, even though he could have, because he won the Heisman on a field goal against Auburn and, he loved to point that out to me, but, um, you know, he was just, uh, we had a tremendous group and the athletic staff, the administration there, a lot of the same people that are still there that, uh, you know, that were working in the ticket office or working in compliance or people that I'm working with still to this day. So I, uh, I'm very fortunate that things worked out the way that they did. I never would have thought I was happy to kick an extra point my freshman year. And I thought that was it. I could tell my kids that I would, I kicked an extra point. But to, to kind of have the progression that I did, I was, yeah, very, very lucky and very fortunate and thankful that it did happen. And they, Coach Spurrier gave, handed the kicking keys over to me as a, as a walk-on. And so I was, uh, you know, very lucky that he trusted me and, and felt confident enough that I could do that job. And then to ultimately give me a scholarship, that made my parents happy. Uh, it was one of those moments, you know, kind of like you see now where they award scholarships. I had that kind of moment. I still get choked up watching kids, you know, when they get those moments because it, you know, I, I remember my experience there and how great that was. I'm going to quote uh, your Twitter bio here. I kicked a football at UF successfully and in the NFL unsuccessfully. What's the difference between the college and pro games? Um, I would say, well, I guess it's the, the business aspect of it, right? In college, it was, you were limited to the amount of time you had other kind of ancillary stuff to do, whether that was, you know, friends or school, you had other things to occupy your mind. When you get to the NFL, it's, that's your, that is it. That's your job. You got to do whatever you got to do to be the best kicker or the best quarterback. And so, I struggled with that a little bit. And uh, I think I took kind of the same mentality that I had in college, what worked for me in college and, and didn't necessarily apply that in the NFL. And so I, uh, and kicking is a lot about confidence. It's very similar to golf. If your confidence is high, you're, you're going to perform well. And, uh, and kicking, if you, there's no gray area, it's black or white, you either make it or you miss it. You can't have an okay game. You either had a good game or a bad game. And so uh, you have to mentally be prepared for that. And I think that's where the area where I struggled um, you know, when I got cut, I, I, when I interviewed at fanatics, they said, how do you handle rejection? I said, I'm 27 years old. I've gotten fired seven times. I think I'll, uh, I think I'll be okay. And so, uh, you know, you learn to deal with rejection, but then, you know, the, my agent used to always tell me, you don't need to have 32 teams like you, you need to have one team that likes you. And so I continued to get opportunities after I got let go by the 49ers. But, um, you know, there comes a time when it's you know, the phone calls quit coming or, you know, you just, you got to chase that dream and it's time to move on. And I kind of felt like that. And um, so I was, you know, very fortunate that it landed me here at Fanatics and I could still work in sports and not have to, you know, I always thought that you had to work for a team or a league to basically be working in sports and to be kind of on the fringes of sports, but still connected to what's going on in the field is, has been a, a dream for me. Some of the experiences that you had in college of that locker room and everything you did have in the pros and you even got to play in the playoffs a little bit. It, what is that atmosphere like as a guy who's never going to be close to a football field for an NFL playoff game? What, what was that like? And, and I, I got to pry a little bit here specifically because that was one unbelievable playoff win that you guys had. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, if you talk about locker rooms after a win, the playoff game, we beat the, we came back and beat the Giants uh, in 2002. Or actually, I guess it was January of three. 
was incredible. Um, that was, you know, very vivid um, what that feeling was like. Uh, it, it's hard to put it into words because, you know, it, it, it's everything about it. it's excitement. It's I can't believe we did that. Um, and then, you know, you, you talk about the highs of that game and then the very next week we go and get blown out by the eventual Super Bowl champion. So it's kind of like your, uh, your wake up moment. Like, um, you got to see both sides of the coin, if you will, the, the, the highs, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I'm, there's guys that play 10 years in the NFL that never get to go play a playoff game. And the fact that I got two of them. And I got a game ball for the for the Giants game, the first uh, playoff game. I actually sprained my ankle in pregame warmups and had to get like you know two shots of Novocaine in my leg and in my ankle, and I could barely put any pressure on it. And so I had to uh, I had to kind of work through that pain to uh, to make a couple extra points and and uh, field goal there too as well. Wait a minute, but but you also had a huge play in that game because you guys take the lead. You're down 24. You take the lead. 39-38, and you got to kick off on this bum ankle, and you had to make the tackle. Yeah. Well, on a so some would argue that, yeah, some would argue that I should have kicked the ball harder and through the back of the end zone, but I couldn't put any weight on my left foot. And so, yeah, the ball kind of came off spinning and they caught it. And uh, yeah, I had to make, that was, I think the game ball I have, it does reference my one tackle in that game. And so, um it's funny. Yeah. I, I, the special teams coach wasn't thrilled with the kick, but was thrilled with the tackle. Um, so I guess you kind of, you win one, you lose one, but, um, yeah, they would have rather me just kick it as hard as I could through the back of the end zone, but, uh, it was hard to do when you can't feel your left ankle. You talked about getting fired a few times and, you know, you did, you, I think it was six or seven teams over the span of four years that, you know, you went from, uh, that time with the 49ers, you were with the Panthers a little bit. Um, I think you also were with Washington. Um, the transition though, from, okay, this isn't going to be a long-term NFL career. What are the challenges that you go through when you do have to hang it up, especially when you put in so much time, high school, college, you really, all, you know, is football at a certain point, how hard is it to come back to a nine to five job? Yeah, it was, it was very hard. Uh, I was a telecommunications major in college. So I, you know, wanted to do the NFL thing and then go into broadcasting or see where that took me. And so, uh, I had gotten kind of far down that path in college and then kind of realized that like, if this NFL thing doesn't work out, I don't know if this is going to be my long-term solution. I didn't at that point in time, didn't want to go to, you know, Bozeman, Montana to work in a local news station covering high school sports and rodeos. And so that to me, wasn't, wasn't appealing. I, I kind of wanted to do the NFL thing and then use that from a relationship standpoint to, to get a, another job in the market. And so I, uh, when the NFL thing stopped, I basically said, I'm not going to go start from the bottom and, and work my way up at a news station. And so um, I interviewed for a couple jobs here in Jacksonville and started realizing that they weren't kind of the right fit for me. And then through a couple connections here in Jacksonville, like actually through my dad and, and uh, one of my coworkers' fathers, they were friends. I got the interview at Fanatics. And so uh, I knew that you know, obviously the salaries were much different when you go from an NFL salary to this, but I knew that there was opportunity and I liked what the story that they were building here at Fanatics and the little bit of business that they had been able to get done in a short amount of time was uh, very intriguing and it allowed me to stay in Jacksonville. I'd gotten married and so uh, I was very fortunate, but yeah, it took me a little while. I caddied for a friend of mine for a month on the uh, nationwide tour and so I was just trying to figure all that out and do some things that I probably wouldn't get to do normally. And, and uh, yeah, my wife at the time was like, you know, she, when, when we're still married, but when she was, when we had just gotten married, she's like, you're not going to be a caddy this whole four weeks on the road thing. You're not going to do that. And I was like, all right, all right you win. And so, um, you know, I got to do that. It was an experience, but I ultimately knew I wanted to get into the business world and, and stay in sports in some capacity. And this has allowed me to do that. The transition, whether coming out of college athletics or playing the pro game, I think it is a challenge for some. And I know that's something you're involved with helping with now. What is the X-Turn program? 
Yeah. So uh, every year the NFLPA uh, works with companies and they, they give guys that are either currently playing or had, have recently retired from the game. They give them a chance to earn real world experience. And so uh, they do a, you know, Fanatics has been a part of the program uh, since day one. And I've been, uh, our company assigns eight to 10 employees as a mentor for each of these uh, athletes. And so I've been a part of it just based on my history with playing and, and kind of going through a similar experience. Um, so they, they come in, it's a three week process and we have a very regimented itinerary for them. It's everything from warehouse operations to product creation, to customer service, to marketing, to everything. And so they go and spend, you know, three days here and three days here. And, you know, for, for us, it was great because they got to see every aspect of the business and every, uh, office that we have too. We would fly to California and then they'd go up to New York and sit down with our business affairs and legal department. And then they'd go to South Florida and see our collectibles and memorabilia group. And so they got to see everything that we do, a peek behind the curtains. And then you come away and, and you talk to these guys after the fact and they're like, I'm blown away that like everything that goes into selling a t-shirt online or selling a t-shirt at a stadium, like we see the people in the stands and we're playing and they're wearing all the stuff that we never really we don't know how the sausage is made and we kind of give them a peek behind the curtains to, to do that. And, you know, we've actually hired uh, four or five of, of the externs that have come through the program. So it's been really, really well received. I know our company is very uh, honored to be a part of it and we get a great group of guys every year too. It's, it's been awesome. And I feel very fortunate that I can impart a little bit of, you know, what I know on the fanatic side and, and how I um, left the game. I can, kind of explain that to the guys and, and talk them through because every single one of them is at a different stage in, in their life. Some are go, trying to go the entrepreneur route and figure out how to build a business on their own. And some guys are, you know, wanting to jump right in and be on the finance side or be on the marketing side. And so uh, it's, it's, it's great to talk to them and impart any little bit of wisdom that I can. I close every episode with a half dozen questions that are the same for every guest called the set pieces. What are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? Yeah. So I, um, I mean, I get the newsletters I get every day. We get the D one ticker, which is a great uh, college focused uh, newsletter. Uh, I also get uh, all these, all the sports business journal stuff. Uh, Front office sports is another one that I've kind of fallen in love with recently on the newsletter side. And then 2PM Inc. Uh, is a kind of a retail direct to consumer focused newsletter um, that I've kind of fallen in love with over the last know, maybe 12 months. It's just been uh, it's it's been great. They, they highlight direct to consumer businesses and the struggles and, and the wins and, and kind of the shifts in the marketplace. So it's uh, it's been great for me. On social media, who are your most valuable follows? The posts you don't want to miss. Uh, I, social media for me is, uh, more entertainment than I use it for work. So I, uh, a lot of my hobbies I focus on with Twitter. So whether that be golf or, uh, or outdoor activities, uh, and then obviously I follow a lot of, um, you know, my Florida Gators to, through social media. So I really enjoy the no laying up crew on the golf side. Um, they're great. Uh, what else? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, Florida Gators stuff, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, stuff like that. I, I try not to, and then on the retail side, I do follow the Retail Insider and Retail Dive. They give kind of broad-based um, industry retail updates. There's really not much from a licensed sports side, um, purely focused on the apparel out there, but maybe, that, maybe that's my niche. What are a couple books you'd recommend? Yeah. So I, uh, I mentioned kind of golf passion. I, uh, I've read a course called Scotland where Tom Coyne walked all around the uh, country of Scotland and played golf at, yeah, I think it was a hundred and something courses. Um, that was an incredible, that's a, it's essentially a travel book. Uh, but it's also about, you know, the golfing experience and the community and camaraderie around golf. Uh, and then as a kid growing up here in Jacksonville, I, I grew up surfing, going to the beach a lot. Barbarian Days is a really cool book about a guy that grew up in Southern California and kind of the surfing culture at that point in time, which I was always 
enthralled with as a kid because I'd read Surfer Magazine and see, you know, all the big waves out in California and Hawaii and then kind of what we had here on the on, in Jacksonville and Ponte Vedra and St. Augustine. And so I've, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of experiences that I would always want to do. Right. And that's kind of where where my interest in books is, is like, you know, kind of idealistic options if I could. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? Yes, I, I was trying to think about this, Pete, and I was, um, I'm struggling to find this. I, I think I make things very difficult on myself for a reason. I don't know why, but uh, I haven't really found a good life hack. Um, I mean, I guess making the kids lunches the night before so that I don't have to do it the morning of when chaos is in the morning, you know, when everybody's kind of still half asleep. I think that that's probably the, the biggest life hack. Um, that is that is a very good one. That is invaluable to get that time back because it never yes. goes well in the morning. Yeah. And then I get their requests when they're fully alert as opposed to when they're still half asleep and they don't change their mind. So <laughs> what do you uh, what do you consider your favorite sports memory as a kid? Uh, this is uh, this is uh, interesting. So the Jacksonville T-Men used to be a. Uh, professional soccer team here in Jacksonville. And they used to play at the Gator Bowl, the big Coliseum downtown. And, and then at halftime, they would have these like soccer games that would go on. It'd be like seven-year-olds playing. And my dad was my brother's coach and they needed a, one of the kids couldn't make the game. So they needed somebody to go out there and play. And I was four years old and I got to go play soccer in front of a packed stadium of fans. But what I found out later, I, I don't remember this. this is more basically people telling me this. I didn't move the entire game. So I just stood there. I was like, petrified. so, but I, um, you know, it was kind of one of those moments where I'm sure probably at the time I was like, what's going on here? You know, I'm looking up and seeing all these people, but, uh, yeah, I just stood there and didn't move. So. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Yeah, I haven't seen my credentials in almost a year because they're at my office. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I've got all of them. It is fun to look back at, um, you know, the, the passes and the credentials to kind of remember some of those experiences. But, uh, yeah, they're all safely stored away in my desk. Some, at some point, I'll get back in there and get them, Pete. I'm, I'm adding a part two to this question. Where is that game ball from the playoff game? It's, uh, it's right there. I see it. <laughs> Excellent. In the home office. Great place for it. Jeff, yeah. I appreciate the time. Some really great insights, uh, an incredible story of fanatics and the growth. And it's great to hear from someone who's been along for most of that ride as well. So I appreciate you sharing all those insights with us today. Well, I appreciate it, Pete. Thanks for letting me tell my story. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. If you haven't already done so, take a moment to go to the show notes and watch the video clip of the tackle Jeff made in that playoff game. I was impressed when I had first seen it, and then finding out that he had done that after injuring his ankle was an awesome play. I really appreciate Jeff taking the time to share so much about the business of Fanatics and his football background, and I appreciate you for listening. While you are at credentialsonly.com checking out the show notes, make sure you drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. And if you like what you heard, please do us a favor. Leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. Don't forget, follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Big thanks to Mike Boucher for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.